just say that um, as we've begun a series now on seeking the Lord, um, we want to invite you to realize it's not too late to jump in if you weren't here last week or if you have uh, still not obtained uh, one of our workbooks that's back on the book table. Uh, we encourage you to pick one up today and just jump in. Just pick up on the lesson we're on and uh, use it as a tool to help you uh, get into the Word each week, to get you focused into really seeking the Lord personally. And we're hopefully now going to, at the end of the month, uh, seek the Lord corporately together in a very real and, and a practical way. And so we hope that this will become a time where all of us sense that God is working among us in ways that uh, bring about the change He wants to see uh, inside of us, around us, and ultimately in this area for the glory of God. Let's pray together before we look into the Word. Our Father, you know all things. You are the one who searches our hearts. You know our thoughts. You know even what we're going to say before we say it. And Lord, uh, none of us has that ability. We are unable to have that kind of deep, intimate knowledge, even of ourselves. We don't even know all of the reasons why we do all we do. And so many things are, we're blind to them, Lord, issues of our hearts. So we pray that your spirit who searches us and who also has inspired this word, the word of God, we pray that you would take your word today and use it, Lord, to reveal what needs to be revealed. We pray that you would use your word to um, bring us to the point where we're willing to change and to see the areas where we need to see your Spirit working in us. And most of all, Lord, turn our eyes off of ourselves toward Christ, the one who truly humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross. We pray that he may be the focus of our worship and our time in the Word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now in our series on seeking God in our second week, I want to just start off with a very obvious introduction. And that is to say that there are two ways to seek God. We could seek God the wrong way, and that is to seek God with self-confidence, to seek God with self-assurance, like the publican in the, in the temple complex, sort of saying, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like this person, I'm not like that person, and look at all that I do, and and I'm sure you must be pleased with me. No, that's not a good way to seek God at all. Really, the right way to seek God is obviously with humility. To approach God with a proud heart is really problematic. It's offensive to God. We know that there are several lists in Scripture, Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 8, a short list of things that God hates and God despises. Well, on that list is the word pride. And if our goal is to seek God earnestly, to seek God sincerely, we better be sure we're not approaching Him with an elevated view of ourselves. But we ought to seek Him with a lowly spirit, with a, with a humble attitude and frame of mind. So I want to use this text of Scripture in James 4. There are many texts we could have used. Uh, Micah 6.8 is a great one. Um, and there are a number of other ones. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 and other ones that you easily could, could uh, easily um, further study on your own. But I want to look at James 4, page 1436 in your pew Bible. 
And I want to seek to answer three questions this morning. The first question is, what symptoms signify that we are in need of humbling ourselves before God? We're going to talk a little bit about what what are the indicators of that in our lives. Uh, Secondly, we want to ask, why is it so urgent that we humble ourselves before God? What's the big deal? And what happens if we don't? And thirdly, how can we practically humble ourselves before the Lord? So the first, what symptoms would indicate that we need to humble ourselves before God? Well, I'm going to start with a list of several of those provided by biblical counselor Stuart Scott. And I've got a little handy little booklet here. It's about 25 pages long, very practical, very revealing uh, regarding the issue. It's called From Pride to Humility. From Pride to Humility. Um, If you've never read that booklet, boy, that's something you really should sit down and have as part of your resources to really think about this. Here are several of the manifestations of pride, according to um, Stuart Scott. See if any of these are true in your life. I'm sure many of them could have multiple checkoffs here. First of all, he says, complaining against or passing judgment on God. Lack of gratitude in general. Sinful anger. Seeing yourself as better than other people. Having an inflated view of your importance or your gifts. Perfectionism. Talking too much. And then he adds another one. Talking too much about yourself. Seeking independence or control. Being consumed with what other people think. Being devastated by criticism. Being unteachable. Being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. Being defensive or blame-shifting. Lack of admitting when you're wrong. A lack of asking forgiveness. A lack of biblical prayer. Resisting authority or being disrespectful. Minimizing the sin of others and their shortcomings. Being impatient with others. Being jealous or envious. Using other people. Being deceitful by covering up sins and faults and mistakes. Using attention-grabbing tactics. And not having close relationships. Now that's somebody who's done a lot of thinking about pride. That's a long list. And certainly we all can see different characteristics of our lives in that list. And since human pride is so offensive to God, James, the author of this particular letter, he did not mince words at all when he started dealing with this issue. He confronted these followers of Jesus head-on regarding this specific symptoms of having a haughty heart, an attitude of arrogance. And as you read through the letter, you learn that some of the believers there that he addressed were involved in one of the characteristics that we see that sort of happens when there's symptoms of pride in a person's heart is, number one, there's relational battles that go on. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4, when he talks about what are these quarrels and these conflicts among you? 
There's a waging of war going on in your, among your members. He talks about the fact that there is this, clearly, the churches of which these people were a part of, and members of, those were churches that were polarized. There was obvious divisions among them. And the lack of cohesiveness among the members of the body of Christ indicated that their hearts were primarily devoted to their own selfish living. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Just go up a little earlier at the end of chapter 3. And notice that he talks about the lack of respect they have for each other. Their, their hearts are filled with jealousy. Their hearts are filled with selfish ambition. All of these are indicators that there's pride really at the root of all of this. I've often wondered what would happen. And imagine with me, this is a crazy scenario, but just go with me here. Imagine if you got up one day and you saw a text message on your phone or you began to see all those uh, written text signs they have out on the side of the road that says, all traffic laws are negated today. In other words, none of the rules of the normal driving laws apply on this particular day. It's just a day in which they're just not enforced. Now imagine what that would be like. Imagine everyone driving the way they want to drive. Imagine everyone just doing whatever they felt like doing at the moment and saying, I'm not staying on this side of the road, I'm going on that side of the road, or I'm cutting around this way, or I'm, I'm not yielding to that person. And imagine what it would be like. When you talk about aggressive driving, we already see enough of that already, don't we? But I think this is an interesting point. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 3, at the end of that verse, I think it's a description of what you would find in a typical intersection. <laughs> if that were the case, all laws set aside for a day, let people drive as they wish, as they desire, you would find all forms of disorder and every evil thing. And that is the effect of pride in the human heart. Disorder and every evil thing. I wonder, does that describe your marriage? Is there evidence of that in your marriage? Is there evidence of that in your family? Is that a description of what your work environment is like? Or is that describing somehow the student body at your own school? More and more, sadly enough, I think it's becoming a description of our society. You see, proud human hearts ruin relationships. So we're talking about the horizontal effects of pride. Arrogant attitudes produce ongoing arguing, quarreling, animosity. It can happen in marriage. It can happen when there is this kind of fallout within a a marriage relationship, you've got to say somewhere else, if you trace it all down to the, the core of it all, pride is the real problem here in this particular marriage. Pride in each spouse. And then pride is sort of, I compared it to like rust. It's like rust. Left untreated, pride causes relationships in families and communities and churches and neighborhoods and schools and organizations to corrode and to fall apart. I've been thinking about the first car I ever had. It was a, a white Corolla. I think it was a 74 or something. And uh, the great car ran tremendously. Never had problems mechanically with it. 
But boy, oh boy, it was a rust bucket. It was a car that had rust up under the fenders, and it was just kept getting worse and worse, and you would just begin to see this breakdown of the integrity of the car, and there got to the point where the, the um, hood in its attachment to the car, front of the car, it no longer was attached. It was just like moving around. And so we, even though you slammed it down the front, this thing's bouncing up and down. I'm like, that's it. We're going to get rid of the car. That's done. It ruined it. It's a, it's a shame because the car itself ran well. Well, I think it's sort of like that in our society today. Corrosive, the corrosive attitude of conceitedness just sort of eats away at the bonds of marriage commitment. It, it breaks down the ties of family loyalty. Over time, it can break down the close association of the civic community that at one time there used to be true neighborhoods of people that had community where they really cared about the people on their street, on their block, in their neighborhood. Over time, pride like corrosive and like rust can break down the covenant of church Unity among members in a church. So we can go on and on talking about the horizontal dimension and concerns, but I want to briefly then think about the vertical dimension of the serious effects of pride. The need to call, our, call ourselves and to humble ourselves is true because proud hearts are highly offensive to God. Highly offensive. When we have an elevated view of ourselves, which is revealed by living a life in which we become self-absorbed and live for self-fulfillment, and we sort of conform ourselves to the worldly system, the way the worldly system thinks about life is, self is at the center of everything. When we live that way, obviously that's highly problematic to God. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 4 in James, he compares it to the level of seriousness as if we were committing spiritual adultery or unfaithfulness before God. Proud hearts essentially are hearts that refuse to do the will of God. A proud heart finds delight in having our own way. And when it comes to the serious implications of this, I want to quote from a book that I've, again, is very short, very practical, but it's called Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney. It is a good read, and I would encourage you to pick it up sometime. Uh, he helps, understand, helps us understand why pride's so offensive to God because he describes the nature of human arrogance. Listen to this quote. I think it's in your notes. He says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. It's as if we lose track of what our normal and proper role and responsibility and place in life is, and we begin to step into something that's far beyond where we should be, somehow trying to take on God's role, God's responsibility, God's privileges. I think of Romans 1 as a very good example of how this plays itself out. When God says in Romans 1, beginning in verse 21, he's already said God is, reveals himself. It's very obvious. You can't ignore the fact that there's evidence, clear evidence, for everybody to see that God exists. But then he says, even though people know God, 
They do not honor him as God. They do not give thanks, but they become futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart is darkened. And professing to be wise, what do they do? They become fools. This is what pride does. And that we exchange the glory of the incorruptible incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then it says, and then God just gives them over. If people are refusing to acknowledge and give God the rightful place that he deserves and they choose to worship the things that God made instead of the one who made them, he says, okay, I'm just going to let you go then. I'm going to let you go into the the mess of pride as it just destroys all different kinds of angles of life. And that's what Romans 1 tends to sort of expand on. And if you notice verse 30 in that list of Romans 1, as you find a list of the kinds of things you find in today's world all sorts of characteristics of modern-day people, myself included, is we find what? Verse 30, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, proud, boastful. That's the evidence of what? That we're no longer giving God proper acknowledgement of His position of high glory and honor. And as long as we choose to live this way, James 4 Verse 4 very clearly indicates that when that is the attitude of our heart and mind, we are living in a way that is hostile toward God. It is not a neutral place to live. We are clearly living in spiritual hostility. So that begs the question, secondly then, why is it so urgent that we humble ourselves before God? Well, Whenever we lift up our hearts, we contend for God's supremacy. When we pursue the goal of self-exaltation, you can be sure that God's reaction is not to ignore that. God's not going to react with indifference to that kind of improper insubordination. He hates pride. And he actively opposes it. That's what James chapter 4, verse 6 says. God opposes the proud. John Calvin has this helpful quote. He says, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, obscure the glory as far as they can. God opposes proud people. So the question is, if God opposes proud people, what kind of response does that uh, inspire you to do? To become all the more defiant and say, no, I'm going to be who I want to be, or I'm going to sort of begin to yield myself to that reality that God is far greater than I am, and I must assume a proper position before him. I've been thinking about these massive storms and hurricanes that we've seen uh, come through this area, but even in other areas where the the winds get far beyond 100 miles an hour. How is it that certain trees are still standing after 100-plus mile-an-hour winds and other trees are broken with branches everywhere and the tops of them are knocked out and they look like they've been devastated? Well, if you think about it, the palm trees, 
I did a little research on this. Palm trees have a very significant amount of networking of roots that go into the soil, all directions, all over the place. There's the massive root network uh, at the base of a tree, of a, a palm tree. The, the actual uh, trunk of the tree is flexible. It, it's not, um, it doesn't expand like this, like a tree normally has concentric circles that grow like this. Uh, a palm tree has all sorts of interweavings within it and, it, and it's flexible. So it actually can bend to 40 degrees or even 50 degrees in, in very high winds. And then the leaves on a palm tree do what? They fold up. In the massive winds, they'll, be, they'll sort of begin to come. Instead of this, they'll just go like this when the wind's blowing. And so they adapt and they sort of fly in the wind much better than what? Than, an, than a pine tree. A pine tree is massive. It's top heavy. It's got all these needles. It's got all these branches. And when the winds come, there's no flexing on that. It's just they stay right there and boom, the wind just begins to snap off those branches and break them off in massive ways, even knocking over the entire tree. Well, when God opposes a person in their pride, excuse me, it seems like that's designed to teach them a lesson. It's designed to teach us really how weak we are, how little we are compared to God in his high and elevated position. And one thing I can assure you, God will deal with our pride if we refuse to. Charles Spurgeon said, I think this is in your notes as well, every Christian has a choice between being humble or being humbled. You could really say every person has that choice. See, God's going to stand in the way of every conceited person. He resists every proud person. There are no exceptions. It makes no sense to seek God, therefore, with a proud heart. But that's just one side of the equation. There's a sense in which it doesn't make sense because God's going to oppose that. On the other side of the equation, in James, it assures us that God gives grace to the humble. Those who repent, those who lessen the focus on themselves, those who make the goal of elevating God something they want to seek in their life and they want to become available to regarding people as more important than themselves, to those people, God promises this. He will shower them with grace. Instead of resisting them, God promises to help them. Instead of resisting them, God will strengthen them. He will elevate those who are lowly, Luke 14. And God will one day recognize when we have yielded to other people, something that many of us find very difficult to do. How, why should I have to yield to this person? They're what they want to do all the time. Well, yielding to that other person, assuming the position of, being, of putting others first, God will one day elevate us, put us, put us into positions of glory and honor. Verse 6 there of chapter 4 in James is something I think is very, very much, very much worthy for our consideration. Consider this promise that God has made. If we swallow our pride, if we are people who yield to God, if we're willing to serve other people, what is God promising to us? God promises not to cast us away. 
Even though we humbly confess our many sins, we begin to admit this is who we really are, this is what we really are struggling with, this is what we really think, this is what we really are doing. Instead of God saying, there's no hope for you, God says, listen, I want to give you greater grace. Greater grace now is going to be infused into your life. Rather than giving us a cold shoulder, God welcomes us with open arms. When we become contentious, when we become selfish, like some of these people here in James 4, when we get caught up in our own sinful ambitions, God's patience is not exhausted. He gives greater grace. To those who are tempted to believe that God will not help you anymore because you've slipped into a mode of thinking and acting in which you become very self-centered. What does God say? Listen, my generosity toward you is never going to be exhausted. My grace is greater than your sins. My grace will never run dry. I imagine there might be, there might be some of us here who have had to admit that times in our life we've stopped praying. And prayer is something that maybe we find very little is devoted to that pursuit of God. Maybe we've attempted to somehow foolishly fend for ourselves in a situation. We've begun to, to, to fight for our, our ways and our rights and different things. And, and looking in the situation, God says, listen, I've got amazing greater grace for you when you repent. When you seek the humble position and a lowly attitude of heart, he says, I know that you are facing a position of weakness, but that's where I want to meet you. I want to help you and grant you entrance into the storehouse of my grace. I want you to come often and freely to my throne of grace. I want to gladly supply you with grace to continue to swim up against the tide of this worldly ways that's all about self and self-fulfillment. This is a very helpful promise in Isaiah 66, verse 2. You might want to jot that one down. Isaiah 66, 2. Listen to the promise that God makes to those who humble themselves and their ambition. This is the person to whom I will look. I will notice. I will make sure that I am focused on this person. Who is that? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God will look upon you with unmerited kindness. Now, I want to make sure it's very clear to you this morning, and maybe I haven't said this enough, but nowhere in the Bible do you read the words, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. Rather, God helps those who what? Who humble themselves. Who admit that they need a Savior who admit that they struggle with selfishness, to those who admit that they have a tendency to minimize our sins, to easily excuse them away, that God helps those who admit that they have a propensity to seek our own will rather than God's will, and that all of us have a struggle in our hearts pulling us toward worldliness, the worldly way of thinking that says, I deserve better. I want to find out what is my rightful privileges in this situation. I want to do what make, makes me feel happy and joyous rather than think about other people. 
There's grace for us, my friend. We who struggle with pride, we can find grace when we humble ourselves and acknowledge that we need that grace. Well, that leads me then to my third question, and I want to make sure we have time for this. There are going to be very quick little points here that I'm sure that um, could be expanded on if you think about it, but I want to just give you several practical ways. If you say, well, I understand this. There's a need to be humble. How do I do it? Here are several practical suggestions. I'll draw these again from the book on humility by C.J. Mahaney. First, I would suggest that we need to meditate on the cross of Christ. Meditate on the cross of Christ. Take some time and contemplate the bitter cost that Jesus endured when he humbled himself, even to the point of dying on a cross in order to what? To cover our sin. He takes on our concerns, our interests, not just his own. He had no reason to be dealing with sin. He took on the issues and concerns of us sinners. I've given you the quote by John Stott explaining the powerful effect of the cross of Christ upon us. He says, every time we look at the cross Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. That is so true. When we talk to people about Christ, when we talk to people about their sin, what is one of the quick things that they do? Oh, well, you know, I... I'm not as bad as Hitler. They immediately begin to compare themselves and come up with some scale as to how bad they are. And look at this. I do. I am involved in this. I've got a long list of my self-righteousness over here. It's interesting how the cross of Christ took Saul, the ultimately most religious person of his day, and brought him to the point where he says, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. It was a 180 in his view of himself. So part of that will help us. And I would suggest you just write down in your notes Philippians chapter 2. Just That's what we can read on a regular basis to help us in this area of our thought life and the cross of Christ and what Christ has done for us. Another suggestion is to submit ourselves to God. Verse 7 of James 4. He talks about submitting. Well, that's not a very popular word in today's world. That doesn't sound like the self-fulfilled life. It really means to yield to God's authority, to yield to His greatness, His wisdom. It's a military term. And it's used to refer to soldiers who soon upon being in their training exercises, they learn to march in step based on the directions of their superior. So when they're told to halt, when they're told to stop, they do that. 
When they're told to right face, they do a right face. When they're told to stand still and stand at attention, that's what they do. And the first step toward humility is to align ourselves under the authority of Christ. To subordinate ourselves and our preferences. To yield to the will of God. To yield to the wishes of our sovereign King and Master. One of the most important components of seeking God, if we're serious about it, is to fully surrender everything to Christ. Everything. That includes our secret sins, our money, our time, our entertainment, our plans, our imagination and fantasies, our bitterness over past hurts, and on and on. So part of this submitting to God means that we admit our true condition before God. Like Isaiah did when he comes and sees the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What was Isaiah's response to that? Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. There's, un there's all kinds of issues in my life that I begin to admit and confess. So getting down off our high horse and finding our proper place in the world is a very important first step. Much more I could say about that, but that certainly is a very important component. Thirdly, I would add to this, um, how do we develop the element or the characteristic of humility before the Lord? Well, I would say throughout the day, every day, express thankfulness to God. Thankfulness to God. You know, ungrateful people are essentially proud people. They think they deserve good. They think they deserve credit for everything in their life. But if you really know what's going on here, we would have to admit that God's mercies and God's undeserved gifts are all around us and have enriched our lives in ways that we would never be where we are apart from God's mercies and gifts. As one author put it, God places before us sticky notes in our lives as daily reminders of His presence and his provision. Now, I'm a, I'm a post-it note guy. I have them all over. I have them reminding me anytime something's going on, just right on the corner of the counter in the kitchen before I leave out the door, or I have it on my desk. Sometimes I'll put it by my chair right by the door. I mean, I need to be reminded of certain things. Well, imagine if we go through our day and we're looking for indicators. Wow, look at this blessing. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for that. It's taken me a while to get to this point, but I've just started, and I think I've mentioned this before, I've started a journal, a Thanksgiving journal, of writing in there every day something I'm thankful for. It's such a helpful exercise for my soul to get me to stop thinking about things I wish were different or things that are bothering me or making me anxious or fearful about the future. No, focus on what to be thankful for that God has given you today or yesterday. It's so helpful. It reminds me of the text there in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul asked the question, what do you have that you did not receive? What did you come into the world with? Not much. An umbilical cord, right? I mean, we lost that even. So what did you come into the world with? Nothing. What do you have? Everything has been given to you as a gift from God. So thankfulness is a way to appreciate 
how gracious and good God is. Thirdly, fourthly, I would like to suggest reviewing regularly God's attributes. Reviewing God's attributes. The more we fill our minds with the truth about God's greatness and God's glory, God's goodness, the less likely we're going to be caught up in our own self-absorbed lives, our own little world in which we tend to sort of think too much about ourselves. I remember when I was in college, someone handed me a little paperback book called The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Yes, that's his last name, Pink. I'm glad I don't have that last name, but that was his name. The Attributes of God. When I read that, wow, my view of God just expanded. It enlarged my sense of appreciation for all of the wonders of who God is, that sometimes I forget all of those different attributes of God. And here they were laid out so clearly and biblically. I find it interesting that when Peter, in the first, cha- first epistle of Peter, chapter 5, he encourages the same response to those who were suffering. They are doing a lot of hardship, a lot of persecution at that time, and life was very difficult for them. And he said, listen, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will lift you up. And I thought to myself, what will give me a sense of God's mighty hand other than just becoming familiar with the Scriptures and what we learn about God and His mightiness, might in the Scriptures that really will help us. Fifthly, I want to encourage us, if we want to develop humility, is to begin each day acknowledging our need of God. Now, I don't know how you begin your day. Uh, I don't use an alarm. I just wake up when I wake up. I usually get seven hours of sleep, and I'm just I'm awake. So sometimes that's very, very early in the morning. Sometimes I actually sleep in longer than I intend to, but it's usually not that long. Uh, but what's the first thing in your mind when you get up? What is the thing that seems to be foremost as you begin to move into your day? Well, Pride, if we're not careful, will deceive us into believing the lie that we are self-sufficient. That we can do things on our own in life. We can handle life pretty much, you know, take it as it comes and we'll deal with it. My friend, I think that's a, a very dangerous way to begin moving into a day is to somehow think you can handle it on your own. We are all desperately in need of God's help. And if you don't are aware of that, that's all the more reason you need to be because you've become blinded by your own sufficiency. Let me encourage you to deliberately begin your day by asking God to help you at the dawn of every new day. Just a quick prayer. Lord, I need your help today. Please help me. And use other people to make me aware of how much I need you. It's a great prayer. We need prayer to help resist temptation. We need help to to learn to trust God that day. We need help in navigating through Satan's schemes that are definitely going to be laid traps for you throughout your day. To direct our minds and hearts toward God to keep us fighting that battle against pride and being more aware of our need to be walking humbly before the Lord. We need help. We need help. So starting the day off that way is a great way to say, look, I don't have my act together. I need your help. And lastly, I would just say, as a practical way to encourage us in this pursuit of humility, is to prayerfully read through in your workbooks this week 
There's a day five assignment in which there's a long list, a contrast between humble people are like this, proud people are like this. And look over that list slowly and thoughtfully and and prayerfully and begin to say, Lord, what are some areas in my life that I want to see you change? I want to go from this and I want to go to this. And begin to make that your prayer in your Seeking Him workbook as we what? As we acknowledge that we all are born with a proud heart apart from the grace of God, we'll die with a proud heart. But God in His grace, through the cross of Christ, can work to bring us to the point where we learn to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Let's pray. Father, we know it's so easy to have our minds shift to people we know around us who are proud and arrogant. We can see it and sense it a mile away. We have no problem, Lord, when it comes to deciphering when people have an arrogant attitude. But Lord, we all need help. Desperately are we in need of help dealing with our own pride, dealing with our own attitudes of superiority that we tend to develop. We tend to think of ourselves, Lord, in ways that we're much better than we really are. Some of us are very skilled at hiding our sin. Many of us, Lord, have, are very slow to ask forgiveness. Many of us, Lord, are too busy trying to impress other people, trying to earn our brownie points with you. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, apply some of these truths that we've been looking at, this portion of your Word, and just the thought that you oppose the proud. Lord, burn that into our souls today, we pray. Help us to realize that to live a life in opposition to you is utter foolishness. Lord, teach us, we pray, how wise it is to apply our energies, our thoughts, and uh, seek help, your help, in pursuing humility. Lord, work these things in us, we pray, so that we begin to have less of a fear of man and more of a fear of you in our hearts, that we might make much of you, that we might be a people who are very much making our thoughts and affections about Christ and all that he's done for us on the cross. Father, thank you that you have shown us what it means to be humble and you call us to join Christ in that pursuit. We need your help. We are in need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.